Chapter 5 of Armageddon 2419 A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Setting the Trap Inside of fifteen minutes we were on our way. A certain amount of caution was sacrificed for the sake of speed, and the men leaped away either across the forest top or over the open spaces of ground, but concentration was forbidden. The big boss named the spot on the hillside as the rallying point. "'We'll have to take a chance on being seen, so long as we don't group,' he declared. "'At least until within five miles of the rallying spot. From then on, I want every man to disappear from sight and to travel under cover. And keep your ultraphones open and tuned on ten four seven six. Wilma and I had received our battle equipment from the gear boss. It consisted of a long gun, a handgun, and a special case of ammunition constructed of inertron, which made the load weigh but a few ounces, and a short sword. This gear we strapped over each other's shoulders on top of our jumping belts. In addition, we each received an ultraphone and a light inertron blanket rolled into a cylinder about six inches long by two or three in diameter. This fabric was exceedingly thin and light, but it had considerable warmth, because of the mixture of inertron in its composition. This looks like business, Wilma remarked to me with sparkling eyes. And I might mention a curious thing here. The word business has survived from the 20th century American vocabulary, but not with any meaning of industry or trade, for such things being purely community activities were spoken of as work and clearing. Business simply meant fighting, and that was all. Did you bring all the equipment from the valley? I asked the gear boss. No, he said. There was no time to gather anything. All this stuff we cleared from the Susquehannas a few hours ago. I was with the boss on the way down, and he had me jump on ahead and arrange it. But you two had better be moving. He's beckoning you now. Hart was about to call us on our phones when we looked up. As soon as we did so, he leaped away, waving us to follow closely. He was a powerful man, and he darted ahead in long, swift, low leaps up the banks of the stream, which followed a fairly straight course at this point. By extending ourselves, however, Wilma and I were able to catch up to him. As we gradually synchronized our leaps with his, he outlined to us, between the grunts that accompanied each leap, his plan of action. We have to start the big business, ugh, sooner or later, he said, and if, ugh, the Hans have found any way of locating our positions, ugh, it's time to start now, although the Council of Bosses, ugh, had intended waiting a few years until enough rocket ships had been, ugh, built, but no matter what the sacrifice, ugh, we can't afford to let them get us on the run, ugh, we'll set up a trap for the yellow devils in the, ugh, valley if they come back for their wreckage, and if they don't, we'll go rocketing for some of their liners, on the New York, Cleveland, Chicago course. We can use that idea of yours shooting up the repeller, beams, wants you to give us a demonstration. With further admonition to follow him closely, he increased his pace, and Wilma and I were taxed to our utmost to keep up with him. It was only in ascending the slopes that my tougher muscles overbalanced his greater skill, and I was able to set the pace for him as I had for Wilma. We slept in greater comfort that night under our inertron blankets, and were off with the dawn, leaping cautiously to the top of the ridge overlooking the valley which Wilma and I had left. The boss scanned the sky with his ultrascope, patiently taking some fifteen minutes to the task, 
and then swung his phone into use, calling the roll and giving the men their instructions. His first order was for us all to slip our ear and chest discs into permanent position. These ultraphones are quite different from the one used by Wilma's companion scout the day I saved her from the vicious attack of the bandit gang. That one was contained entirely in a small pocket case. These, with which we were now equipped, consisted of a pair of ear discs, each a separate and self-contained receiving set. They slipped into little pockets over our ears in the fabric helmets we wore, and shut out virtually all extraneous sounds. The chest discs were likewise self-contained sending sets, strapped to the chest a few inches below the neck, and actuated by the vibrations from the vocal cords through the body tissues. The total range of these sets was about 18 miles. Reception was remarkably clear, quite free from the static that so marked the 20th century radios, and of a strength in direct proportion to the distance of the speaker. The boss's set was triple-powered, so that his orders would cut in on any local conversations, which were indulged in, however, with great restraint, and only for the purposes of maintaining contacts. I marveled at the efficiency of this modern method of battle communication, in contrast to the clumsy signaling devices of more ancient times, and also at other military contrasts in which the 20th and 25th century methods were the reverse of each other in efficiency. These modern Americans, for instance, knew little of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and nothing, naturally, of trench warfare. Of barrages, they were quite ignorant, although they possessed weapons of terrific power. And until my recent flash of inspiration, no one among them, apparently, had ever thought of the scheme of shooting a rocket into a repeller beam and letting the beam itself hurl it upward into the most vital part of the Han ship. Hart patiently placed his men, first giving his instructions to the camp masters, and then remaining silent while they placed the individuals. In the end, the hundred men were ringed about the valley, on the hillsides and tops, each in a position from which he had a good view of the wreckage of the Han ship, but not a man had come in view so far as I could see in the whole process. The boss explained to me that it was his idea that he, Wilma, and I should investigate the wreck. If Han ships should appear in the sky, we would leap for the hillsides. I suggested to him to have the men set up their long guns trained on an imaginary circle surrounding the wreck. He busied himself with this after the three of us leaped down to the Han ship, serving as a target himself, while he called on the men individually to aim their pieces and lock them in position. In the meantime, Wilma and I climbed into the wreckage, but did not find much. Practically all of the instruments and machinery had been twisted out of all recognizable shape, were utterly destroyed by the ship's disintegrator rays, which apparently had continued to operate in the midst of its warp remains for some time after the crash. It was unpleasant work searching the mangled bodies of the crew, but it had to be done. The Han clothing, I observed, was quite different from that of the Americans, and in many respects more like the garb to which I had been accustomed in the earlier part of my life. It was made of synthetic fabrics like silks, loose and comfortable trousers of knee length, and sleeveless shirts. No protection except that against drafts was needed, Wilma explained to me, for the Han cities were entirely enclosed, with splendid arrangements for ventilation and heating. These arrangements, of course, were equally adequate in their airships. The Hans, indeed, had quite a distaste for unshaded daylight, since their lighting apparatus diffused a controlled amount of violet rays, making the unmodified sunlight unnecessary for health, and undesirable for comfort. Since the Hans did not have the secret of Inertron, 
None of them wore anti-gravity belts. Yet in spite of the fact that they had to bear their own full weights at all times, they were physically far inferior to the Americans, for they lived lives of degenerative physical inertia, having machinery of every description for the performance of all labor, and convenient conveyances for any movement of more than a few steps. Even from the twisted wreckage of this ship, I could see that seats, chairs, and couches played an extremely important part in their scheme of existence. But none of the bodies were overweight. They seemed to have been the bodies of men in good health, but muscularly much underdeveloped. Wilma explained to me that they had mastered the science of gland control, and of course dietetics, to the point where men and women among them not uncommonly reached the age of a hundred years with arteries and general health in splendid condition. I did not have time to study the ship and its contents as carefully as I would have liked, however. Time pressed, and it was our business to discover some clue to the deadly accuracy with which the ship had spotted the Wyoming works. The boss had hardly finished his arrangements for the ring barrage, when one of the scouts on an eminence to the north announced the approach of seven Han ships spread out in a great semicircle. Hart leapt for the hillside, calling us to do likewise, but Wilma and I had raised the flaps of our helmets and switched off our speakers for conversation between ourselves, and by the time we discovered what had happened, the ships were clearly visible, so fast were they approaching. Jump! we heard the boss order. Deering to the north, Rogers to the east. But Wilma looked at me meaningly, and pointed to where the twisted plates of the ship, projecting from the ground, offered a shelter. Too late, boss, she said. They'd see us. Besides, I think there's something in here we ought to look at. It's probably their magnetic graph. You're signing your death warrant, Hart warned. We'll risk it, said Wilma and I together. Good for you, replied the boss. Take command then, Rogers, for the present. Do you all know his voice, boys? A chorus of assent rang in our ears, and I began to do some fast thinking as the girl and I ducked into the twisted mass of metal. Wilma, hunt for that record, I said, knowing that by the simple process of talking I could keep the entire command continuously informed as to the situation. On the hillsides, keep your guns trained on the circles and stand by. On the hilltops, how many of you are there? Speak in rotation from Bald Knob around to the east, north, west. In turn, the men called their names. There were twenty of them. I assigned them by name to cover the various Han ships, numbering the latter from left to right. Train your rockets on the repeller rays about three-quarters of the way up, between ships and ground. Aim is more important than elevation. Follow those rays with your aim continuously. Shoot when I tell you, not before. Deering has the record. The Hans probably have not seen us, or at least think there are but two of us in the valley, since they're settling without opening up disintegrators. Any opinions? My ear discs remain silent. Deering and I remain here until they land and debark. Stand by and keep alert. Rapidly and easily, the largest of the Han ships settled to the earth. Three scouted sharply to the south, rising to a higher level. The others floated motionless about a thousand feet above. Peeping through a small fissure between two plates, I saw the vast hulk of the ship come to rest full on the line of our prospective ring barrage. A door clanged open a couple of feet from the ground, and one by one the crew emerged. End of chapter 5